0: Happy New Year. Hey, all right. Let's give a round of applause for that, I guess. That that goes down in history as the easiest round of applause I've ever earned in my life. (laughs) I wish to the group of people, Happy New Year. Hey, it's great to be with you all this morning. We are wrapping up our 12-week series in Isaiah called Isaiah, Prophet of Doom. How have you guys enjoyed the series? Have you guys liked it? Yeah. Awesome. Second easiest, <laughs> just kidding. Um, we have enjoyed this series immensely. We're, we're really just excited about everything we were able to uncover through this book, but at the same time, we recognize, man, you cannot cover the book of Isaiah in just 12 weeks. So I hope that you guys were reading along with us. I hope you were in small groups. And I want to encourage you to be reading scripture as part of your life next year. And, and hopefully when you get to Isaiah, there will be fresh new insights from having gone through the series. But before we wrap this series up, and we're gonna look at, at the last two chapters of the book and some of the most incredible images of the future of everything that the, that the Bible has to offer. Before we do that, I wanna talk about the idea of Desire. How many of you guys recognize this guy? C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I heard the rumblings and the whispers. That's C.S. Lewis. He's an incredible philosopher and author and Christian thinker who contributed immensely to just our, our, our ways of talking about faith. And he talked a lot about the idea of desire or of longing. He also called it enchantment. And in his writings, he talks a lot about how from a very young age, he had this sense that he called enchantment, but this sense of deep longing and desire for things that he had never actually had before. And how throughout his life, he would kind of try to satisfy that desire with smaller things and found over and over again that they were unsatisfying imagine every single person in the room can relate to this, right? To the feeling of, of having a deep longing for something you've never actually had. You long for a, a family or a home that you've never had. Or since it's New Year's, we can talk about the fact that we all long for a body that we've never actually had. <laughs> but this is the year that it's going to happen for us. <laughs> but we, we long for a, a sense of value, a sense of importance that we've never actually had. It's like nostalgia in reverse, nostalgia for something you've never had. And Lewis says, man, we try to fill that desire with with other things and they always leave us unsatisfied. So the response of many Christians and kind of the the unconscious response that I know I have and that that many of you probably have is to try to kind of shut those desires down. The desires you have for things in this world and you think those desires are horrible and I should try to put an end to them, and if I was a perfect Christian, I would desire nothing. But C.S. Lewis had a completely different idea about how to talk about this. He said, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. This is the beautiful sentence. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Lewis says, The desires you have aren't too big. They're too small. The problem is you're mistaking a a dim reflection of the thing you actually desire for the thing itself. And so, of course, when you get it, it doesn't satisfy you. It's just a, a reflection. You're trying to fulfill transcendent existential desires with temporary, small, material things. In the same essay, he says this. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels... A holiday at the sea doesn't mean anything to you. Just replace that sentence with a vacation to Hawaii. (laughs) That's the American way of saying a holiday at the sea. The images of people, of children, who are playing with mud pies in a slum, and they're having a blast, and they think it's the best thing that they could ever get because they can't even fathom what a Hawaiian vacation would be like. And the brilliance of this metaphor is that, is making mud pies fun when you're a kid? Yeah, it actually is. So his point isn't, no, they're, they're, they're dumb because they think that's fun and it's not. His point is they're dumb because they're satisfied by something so small when there is something so great to be had. And we're just like that. We're a culture that's actually like addicted to the idea of desire. And if you want proof of that, you just have to see the number of Amazon Prime boxes at my house right now. <laughs> How many of you guys are Amazon Prime members? So you know, the feeling of hitting refresh on the tracking information because it's, it's coming. But you know, you really know deep inside that when it gets there, it's not gonna satisfy you, right? That's why you've got another thing coming after that. It really is. I, as a total side note, I ordered a book on Amazon on a Thursday afternoon at like 2.30 p.m. and it arrived the next morning at 8 a.m. I was like, <laughs> Amazon put all the items in my wish list on a truck and they're following me around with it. <laughs> says, we are far too easily pleased. Instead of trying to to lock on to what the big transcendent desire is, we just stack up smaller ones. So for some of us, we're dreaming of tiny things like Amazon stuff, or the next day off. Some of us are dreaming of huge things like the day we retire, the day we get married. But all of it is a small shadow of what we should actually be desiring. So as we get ready to launch into new year and as we get ready to to finish Isaiah, I want to ask you, what is it that you desire? What's the thing you're setting your hope on? What's the thing that you feel like, man, if I got that, then I'd be good. And year after year, when you keep doing that, how does it leave you feeling? Are you going into this next year feeling like courageous and and emboldened and ready to take on the world? Or do you feel kind of tired and kind of dissatisfied and disappointed and wishing that there was something else to look forward to besides the next Amazon package or the next day off that you get? Keep these questions in your mind as we take a look at the last couple of chapters of Isaiah. We have been on a crazy journey through Isaiah. We've seen God, through this prophet, condemn Israel, the nation he chose, for failing to do what they were supposed to do, for failing to establish justice and righteousness and to care for the widow and the orphan and the oppressed. We've also seen him condemn all the nations of earth for for rising up and putting themselves in the place of God and saying, we're not gonna trust God or acknowledge God, we're gonna be like God. And throughout the whole book, there is this buildup of tension and judgment that's coming on these people. And then we saw for the last two weeks, the incredible unexpected solution that God provides by sending a servant who, though he was perfectly spotless and completely righteous and deserved no punishment, he suffered and died for the sins of the unrighteous, us. And We learned about how that person hundreds of years later was Jesus Christ and how through him we have access to God. Now, At the end of Isaiah, because Isaiah is this epic that tells in kind of microcosm the whole story of Scripture, we find in the last two chapters a picture of the end of everything. And so I want to ask you, as we dive into this, allow the prophet to bring you into his imaginative world. We've talked about it a lot in the series, but, but prophets like Isaiah don't necessarily give you like a clean, straightforward, literal description of something. They usually give you images and ideas that are meant to provoke in you a response. They're meant to give you the impression of things, to show you what things are like, not exactly how things will be. Halfway through Isaiah chapter 65, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So the basis that he establishes on which the rest of this is going to be built is a new heaven, new earth. There is new creation that's gonna happen. He's gonna make something new and it'll be a new heaven, new earth. He says the former things shall not be remembered. The thing he's making is so great you won't even remember what came before it. He says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So we've seen Jerusalem as kind of a center point and a theme throughout this whole book, right? What's the other name for Jerusalem we've seen over and over? Zion. Fans of the Matrix will know this. That's that's a joke for like three people in the audience. (laughs) Jerusalem is kind of the center point of God's activity in this book and it's a symbol of kind of God's presence with his people on earth. And so here he's rejoicing in Jerusalem and God himself will be glad in the people there. Has God been glad in his people so far in Isaiah? No. In the future new creation, he will be. And in that place, there is no weeping and no crying and no distress. Those are some of the former things that are gonna be done away with and forgotten. It's an incredible promise. A little later in the chapter, he says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now he's starting to depart a little bit from some of our kind of conventional pictures of what heaven is like, right? But think about what the images are meant to tell you. They're gonna plant vineyards and they get to eat them. They get to build, and they get to live there. You guys see what he's saying? Enemy nations aren't going to come in and dispossess you anymore, which has been the history of God's people for the entire Bible. He says, in the new creation, there will be no dispossession of land. There will be no taking away of the things that you plant. You're going to plant and eat. You're going to get to enjoy the work of your hands. Now this is a reference to something farther back, so if you don't see it, it's okay. But if you're steeped in the story of scripture that Isaiah's been kind of pointing us to throughout this whole book and throughout this whole series, when you hear about people enjoying the work of their hands, that's a hyperlink back to Genesis chapter three. because if you remember the curse on creation, part of it is that there will be toil in labor, that there will be thorns and thistles. There's gonna be sweat, it's gonna be difficult. Work is gonna be painful. We all know what that's like. In new creation, the curse is being undone. Work is enjoyable again. It's interesting. It's not done away with. This is all images of working, but it's enjoyable. Next is a very famous image, but one that we get wrong all the time. It says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is a great bit of Bible trivia for you to carry forth for the rest of your life. When you picture this image, who's laying down with the lamb? The lion. It's not a lion. It's the wolf. And they're not laying down. They're standing together grazing. It's like one of those, you know, there's all those movie lines that we remember wrong. Like everyone always says, Luke, I am your father. Darth, that was Arnold Schwarzenegger. As Schwarzenegger as Darth Vader, by the way. Um, He never says that. Are there any real nerds who knows what Darth Vader actually says? Steven, I knew it. He says, no, I am your father. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't seen The Empire Strikes Back, it turns out Darth Vader is Luke's father. Has been the whole time. None of this matters, by the way. Um, The image means the exact same thing. It's just interesting that we all remember a lion and a lamb, and it's a wolf. And a lamb, but the point again is not to take this literally necessarily. The image is that things that were at enmity with each other, things that used to struggle and kill each other and be terrified and flee from each other, are now together in harmony. It's a picture of perfect peace, what the Jewish people would have called shalom. Except for for one animal, the serpent doesn't get a good promise. The serpent still has the curse from Genesis 3 on him. Again, if you take this too literally and you don't understand the type of symbolism the prophet's using, you go, dang, I guess in heaven, every animal gets a good new deal, except the serpents have to keep crawling around and eating dirt all the time. It's not the point Isaiah is trying to make. He's trying to tell you this symbol of resistance against God, the point person, the creature that most symbolized and started the rebellion against God, he will not be doing that anymore. They called him the day star in Isaiah chapter 14. Later on in the New Testament, they would identify him as Satan himself. It's the only creature in the new creation who the curse isn't lifted from, who isn't reconciled. Why? Because they're not going to be able to hurt or destroy in that place. Keep that in mind. It's very important. Finally, jumping to the last chapter of Isaiah, thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. The her in this sentence is Zion, personified as a woman. And God says this incredibly beautiful promise. I mean, think about the God of the universe, Yahweh himself saying in that place, I'm gonna comfort you the way a mother comforts a baby carried around on the hip of Jerusalem. It's so beautiful. And that second line there, or the second and third line, calls back to Isaiah chapter two. In Isaiah chapter two, Isaiah pictures Zion raised up and all the nations are streaming into it. And it's a really interesting visual because they're streaming uphill. And here we get that same image again at the very end of the book that all the glory of the nations of earth are being brought into the presence of God. The best that every culture has to offer comes into new creation and glorifies God there. It's a multinational, multi-ethnic picture of the end of history. You see images like that all over the place. Anytime new creation is discussed, you will see that the nations are included. It's not just Israel. Now, because this is Isaiah... There's a few like little notes of judgment between here and the very end. There's like 10 verses more. But this is basically the tone that gets carried through to the end of the book. And we're going to go back and look at that in a second. But first, I want to look at some complementary pictures from later in the Bible. If you're thinking books of the Bible that talk about the end of everything, what's the book that comes to mind most? The Revelation. Correct. The Revelation is the very last book in the Bible, It's the last book in the New Testament, and it's a vision that a guy named John receives of the spiritual reality that's going on behind the scenes in the physical world. And so there's a bunch of different things revealed there, but at the end of the book, he gets a picture of the end of history, just like we saw in Isaiah, a picture of what new creation will look like. The amazing thing is if you read his descriptions with all the imagery of Isaiah in mind, like we're about to do, you see how steeped in Isaiah John was. When John sees the visions from God and and tries to explain them in his writing, he uses the images and categories of Isaiah. You see it right away. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Does that sound familiar at all? For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Once again, you have new heaven and new earth. He says the sea is no more. That doesn't mean that you don't get to go to the beach in new creation. The sea to the ancients represented chaos, disorder, fear, death, danger, all of these things. So when he says there's no sea there, it's not supposed to be taken literally. It's a symbol for the removal of those elements of chaos and danger. The thing that ancient people feared is removed. And he sees new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Keep that in your mind. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So most significantly, now in this new creation, God's dwelling place is with man. And then we get an image that's very familiar from Isaiah. He says he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Remember, Isaiah starts off his section on new creation by saying there's no more weeping, there's no more distress. John sees the same thing in his vision. And he says death shall be no more. All the way back in Isaiah 25, Isaiah promised that God would swallow up death forever. Here, in the new creation, that's coming true. There's no more pain. The former things have passed away, and as Isaiah said, they won't be remembered. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment." The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. He's making all things new. And it is a beautiful picture that to the thirsty, the springs of the water of life are available for free. But the main reason I I want us to look at this verse is because that last sentence is kind of strange. You would expect like the natural flow would be, I will be his God and he will be my subject or he will be my servant or something like that. But just like in Isaiah, the promises that like a mother, he will comfort his people. Here, he says, I will be his God and he will be my son. The promises of a place in God's family. You're in his kingdom, yes, but but it's more than that. You're in his family. You can be son or daughter of God. This last image is, is almost overwhelming and it's where you see the biggest difference between what's revealed in Isaiah They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So once again, that international picture of the future is there, and and it's beautiful that all the best things that all the nations and cultures of earth have to offer are brought there before God. And again, that's important because you want that in new creation. You want the soup that the Southeast Asian folks know how to make. Trust me, (laughs) you want pho in new creation. And in that place, no one will fear to eat tripas. the former things have passed away (laughs) all the best things that every culture has to offer and way that's a joke way beyond just the foods of those cultures but not less than those things all of the best of every culture that's a picture that is is so beautiful to me i can't even tell you guys i picture my friends from tanzania and nigeria and cambodia and cuba that, that everyone who trusts in jesus will be there from every culture on earth it's it's an unbelievable image of the future but look at the top there. No temple. This is really significant if you're a Jewish person reading or hearing this. Because what's the temple symbolize to Jewish people? The temple symbolizes the presence of God with his people. Now make no mistake, if you were a Jewish person, you believed that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent, just like we believe that. But you also believe that in the temple, his presence was manifested in this particularly immediate way that was different from everywhere else. So when things are going well in Israel, God is in his temple. Everything's happening the way it's supposed to happen. And everything's kind of being mediated through all these complicated systems that we don't have time to talk about. But God is there. The worst times in Israel's history are when, because of Israel's disobedience, God withdraws his presence from the temple. That's when things like exile happen. But here in the new creation, there's no temple, and it's a good thing. Why? Because the thing that the temple represented is there. What's, what's there that wasn't there? The lamb, Jesus now, don't get caught up in, again, whether there's literally going to be a temple in the new city of Jerusalem or not. Those are, are very interesting but very complicated debates that people have all the time. The point is, God is so imminently present with his people that you don't need that mediatory system anymore. Jesus did it. And so now in new creation, Jesus is there. God himself is there. His presence is so immediate that you don't even need the sun because he's shining on you. This is the biggest difference between John's revelation and Isaiah's revelation. Isaiah said God would be with his people, but how that would be accomplished and what it would look like, Jesus had to come and do something before it could happen. It's incredible. Now, all of this gives us a reason to kind of pause for a second and talk about some of the differences between the way that we typically think about heaven and the way that the Bible talks about heaven. We all have ideas about heaven in our head, and most of them come not from the Bible, but from pop culture. I mean, my favorite image that I naturally think about, because my dad loved Looney Tunes, is, uh, loves Looney Tunes, I should say, Sylvester the Cat gets killed in some horrible murder at the hands of Tweety Bird, who's the good guy for some reason in these stories, and he, his, his soul, leaves his body, and he flies up, and he is presented with two escalators. You guys remember this? Yes. I apologize for everyone who didn't watch Looney Tunes. <laughs> Sylvester the cat sees two escalators, a red one that goes down to hell, which is an underground torture chamber with a, a devil version of the dog, and a golden white escalator that goes up to heaven. <laughs> These pictures like that and the other ones that we get from movies and books and, and other, you know, whatever form of pop culture you're taking in, they inform our views about what heaven is actually like. When you read the Bible, you don't see anything that looks even remotely like that. So there's just a few differences. The first is that we tend to picture heaven as a place where our individual souls will rise up to. But the Bible consistently describes heaven, or more accurately, new creation, as something that God is going to establish here on Earth. Now, again, there's, there are debates about what happens between when you die and when everyone is resurrected at the end of history. The Bible doesn't really talk about it, so we can debate that. But the point is the eternal state where you will live in the resurrection is on a newly recreated, made perfect earth. And that is a really, really good difference. We'll talk about why in a little bit. Actually, the reason why has everything to do with the next category We tend to think of heaven as a spiritual reality that is totally separated from the physical reality of earth. Again, that's why Sylvester the Cat like floats away from earth and sits on a cloud and plays a harp for all eternity. Well, not for all eternity because he always gets sent down to to the dog hell. We have this kind of dichotomy in our way of thinking about spirituality that actually comes from Greek thought, not from the Bible, that says that there is a physical world that's bad and a spiritual world that's good and that they're totally separate. The way the Bible talks about it, the physical and the spiritual were meant to be together. And there is, in a, some sense, a separation that was caused by sin, but, but guys, everything you do in your physical body is spiritual, The Bible is crystal clear. The things you do on earth have spiritual meaning. They have spiritual weight. There's not some kind of separation between the physical and the spiritual. In fact, if you were here for our series in 1 John, then you learned that those ideas came from a form of thought called Gnosticism that was a heresy that came after Christianity. In the Bible, the physical world is spiritual. And along those same lines, the resurrection world, the new creation, is powerfully and comfortingly physical. When Jesus resurrects from the dead, he is given a body, and it's physical, right? The New Testament authors go way out of their way to prove that to you. His disciples touch him. He eats fish with them more than once. The point is, man, this is not a ghost. This is not a spirit. This is a physical body. It's different. It's changed. It's been made perfect. <clears throat> Excuse me. We got the cold that all of Gilroy got. But it is a physical body and you will have one too. And all the descriptions of new creation are physical descriptions. There's a feeling of continuity between what life is like here and what life is like there, just cleaned up and made better, restored and made new, without all of the horrible things that we suffer through here. But it's not a detached spiritual reality, it is an incredibly powerfully physical reality. And that relates to this final category, and this this is kind of the hardest one to wrap our minds around, but it's the most important one, and it actually really encompasses the other two. If you're like me, when you were a little kid and you pictured heaven, and you pictured like the idea of eternity, did it make you like a little bit uncomfortable or creeped out even? You're like, I mean, I want to go there because I don't want to go to the other one, but man, it, it just sounds like, so we just like sit And sing worship songs all day? Like, it's just it's nothing ever changes. Everything's perfect, so it can't possibly get any better. (coughs) That won't happen there. (coughs) That's that should get me through to the end. We're picturing a static state. That's why it's uncomfortable. But the Bible does not describe heaven as a static place where nothing ever changes. I mean, look at the pictures we looked at. There is art and commerce and building and planting. All of these different things are happening that are incredibly dynamic. There is movement. There is progression happening. Again, there's a sense of continuity between what earthly life here is like and what life in the new creation will be like. It's not like some kind of thing where, man, you've got a a separated out, Perfect, unchanging environment where all you do is the same thing all day. The things, the good things that you love about earth will be there in new creation but made better in ways that we can't possibly imagine. It's not going to be less than what's here. You like music? The music will be better, but it won't be static. You don't have to play a harp, you guys. Please let there be electric guitar. You will, the, the thing, again, if you like to write poetry, if you like to create songs, if you like to draw pictures, if you like to garden, the things that you love that are physical, that are dynamic about life here, they will be there, but better. And that is something that we should all be longing for and hoping for, way more than we long for like the sitting on a cloud playing a harp version of heaven. Man, I get why people wouldn't wanna go there. But the picture in the Bible is just so different. It's so powerful. It's something that we can look forward to. I mean, a a city, again, don't take that too literally, but a city that is teeming with life where every culture from around the world is bringing together the best without any of the badness that was there before. It's a beautiful and compelling picture. So let's take a look at how Isaiah wraps it up. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So he says this new heaven, this new earth that I make, it's going to last forever and those who live there will last forever and all flesh is gonna come and worship me. It's a beautiful way to end this book. But there's a problem and some of you have probably already noticed what it is. That's not the last verse of Isaiah. That's the second to last verse of Isaiah. The prophet of doom still has one more thing to tell us. This is where Isaac and I were talking about how it would have been awesome if like the lights went off and it was like dun, 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 and the prophet of doom thing popped back up. We didn't do any of that. I'm just describing it for you instead because that's just as good, right? The prophet of doom has one more thing to say, and it's a very significant, very important thing. This is the last verse of Isaiah. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. The they is the people in the city, and they go out and look over the walls at all the dead bodies of those who rebelled and resisted God. And this is incredibly significant, and we have to talk about it, because just like we misunderstand heaven, we drastically misunderstand hell and import a bunch of ideas from pop culture onto it, and don't actually look at what the Bible has to say about it. Most of us tend to think in that kind of two-escalator category. Like, you can go up to hell, or whoa, you can go up to heaven, you can go down to hell. We think of heaven and hell as opposites, right? There's earth, and then there's heaven up here, and then heaven's opposite is hell down here. But the Bible does not talk about heaven and hell that way at all. In fact, you don't find heaven and hell treated as like two opposites in the same sentence ever in the Bible. Heaven has an opposite. You know what it is? Earth. Whenever heaven is mentioned with something else in the Bible, it's heaven and earth over and over hundreds of times. Heaven and hell, you don't hear that. Hell is something different. Heaven and earth were meant to be together. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 show. They're ripped apart by sin. And in all these pictures of new creation that we were just looking at, they get brought back together. Hell is something separate. In the New Testament, whenever Jesus or one of the other authors says hell, the word that's being translated there is Gehenna. It's actually two words put together, and it means the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a place right outside Jerusalem that everyone hearing Jesus or reading the New Testament would have known about. And what it was in the time of Jesus was a trash dump. It was the place where all the garbage got brought out, and there would have been dry garbage that would be burned, so Isaiah's kind of picture of fire is appropriate, but there also would have been wet garbage that would have been rotting and molding and festering, and so the picture of maggots and worms is also appropriate. It's a trash dump. But there's a different kind of fire that was also a part of Gehenna's history that's even more significant. When Israel was at their worst, their rejection of God always involved idolatry, It always involved worshiping the gods of the pagan peoples around them. And those kind of forms of idolatry, there's a ton of them. Some of them are kind of horrible and some of them are extremely horrible. None of them are not horrible at all. Who can tell me what the worst form of pagan idolatry was in the ancient world? Infant sacrifice, child sacrifice. In the worst points in Israel's history, Israel practiced child sacrifice in the land. Um, The form that people think it took was to a god named Molech. The statue would have been like a big, you know, statue of a god with a hollowed out section underneath it where a fire would be lit, and people would put their children into the fire of Molech. Not only did Israelites do this, on a couple of occasions, the kings of Israel did this. And you can read in the book of Jeremiah some of God's denunci- denunciations of this practice. He is like disgusted by it. It's horrifying. Whenever Israel sacrificed children, guess where they did it? In The Valley of Hinnom. So the picture, when Jesus says Gehenna, when he says hell, the picture that is supposed to be in your head is of a trash dump that's also the site of all of Israel's most horrible grievances against God their worst rebellions against God and God's will. And if you search through the Bible to try to find like a super clear description of exactly what hell is like, you won't find one. Most of the really clear ideas we have about hell come from culture again, not from the Bible. The Bible gives you pictures, it gives you impressions, and you know they're meant to be impressions because they don't always even work together. On the one hand, hell will be described as a place of fire. And on the other hand, it'll be described as a place of darkness. Now, if you have fire, what do you automatically have? Light, right? And the biblical authors aren't stupid. That's not like a mistake. They didn't mix up their metaphors on accident. The point is that both of these things are supposed to give you an impression of hell. It's it's fire. It is destruction and judgment and pain. It's darkness, loneliness, isolation, and fear. And there's tons of other images you find, but none of them are crystal clear. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of punishment. It's a place where once you go there, you're not coming back. But most importantly for what we're talking about today, it's pictured as a place that is outside. I could have just said outside because it's not always the city. In a lot of Jesus' parables, there's a wedding or a feast, and hell is the place where people who either don't want to go there or aren't prepared to go there get sent. In Isaiah and in Revelation, it's outside of the good city of new creation. And this picture is incredibly important for us to get. Because if you're like me, you kind of feel sometimes like hell is something that you should have to apologize for, like feel embarrassed about as a Christian. Like, man, I hope nobody brings up hell because that's one of those gross things that we don't want to have to think about, right? But if you understand hell the way it's being described by Isaiah and the way it's being described by John, it's an incredibly good thing. Here's how it works. God, the good king, establishes this beautiful, perfect good creation that is designed for the flourishing of humanity and for the flourishing of all that is good in creation. Hell, Gehenna, is exile, quarantine outside of that city. So there's a place where God sends every bit of rebellion and evil that would lift itself up against his good new creation, and he quarantines it there. Why? So that they cannot hurt or destroy in all his holy mountain. How could a good king not do this? If he wants to establish a new good creation where there is safety, where there is no distress, where there is no weeping and tears, how can he allow persistent, unrepentant rebellion against him to exist there? And the Bible's crystal clear God doesn't want, God does not desire that anyone should end up there. That's more than once in the New Testament. He wants everyone to be reconciled and he went to great lengths and spent extravagantly to make that possible. So in the words of Joshua Ryan Butler, an author and friend of our church, Jesus' question to us is not, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? His question is, will you let me heal you? Hell is not the vindictive punishing of a few bad people. The Bible and Isaiah have made it crystal clear, everyone is the bad people, and there is an offer of healing, an offer to be brought into that good new kingdom. You can be washed clean. That's what the book of Revelation says. It says inside the city are those who have washed their robes, washed them in the blood of the lamb. Outside the city are all of those who persist in rebellion despite the ability to be made clean. We need to not feel apologetic about the reality of this hell outside the city. This is God's way of protecting his good new creation. The question is the same question from Genesis three. It's who's gonna be God? Me or him? Isaiah would frame the question like this. Have you bowed? Have you entrusted yourself to this king? Back in Isaiah 45, God said this. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now those words are about Yahweh, the God of all creation. And in the New Testament, Paul takes those exact words and applies them to Jesus, which is an incredible thing that I wish we had time to talk about in its own right. He says, therefore, the therefore is, is referring to Jesus' humility and obedience and willingness to die on a cross. And he says, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you believe this book is true, it's not a question of if you will bow to Jesus. It's a question of when and how you'll bow to Jesus. And I understand that's incredibly difficult for modern people to take in. It's difficult for me. Our culture is kind of established and built upon the rejection of kings and kingship. But the picture in the Bible is clear no one deserves this king's mercy, and yet, at great cost to himself, he extends it to you. Will you bow to him? Like I said, it's not if, it's when. It's will you bow to him now, willingly, as a servant and son of God? daughter of God, or will you be forced to bow later as a conquered enemy of God? Those are the two options presented to you in the Bible. But God's great mercy is shown in this span of time he's left between the is, Jesus is Lord, and the shall, every knee shall bow. We live between that is and that shall. Jesus doesn't claim lordship and say, okay, today's the day. I'm resurrected. It's Sunday. It's Sunday. 2,000 years ago, everyone who's not with me is dying and going outside of the city right now. No, the New Testament says God is patient. Why? Because he wants everyone to be reconciled. And so there's this opportunity to entrust yourself to Jesus, to claim the spot that he has made for you in that city. And so if you haven't done that, this is the time to do it. And the Bible's clear, this opportunity does not last forever. At the same time, If you have done this, if you have submitted yourself to Jesus and entrusted yourself to Jesus, there are a whole lot of people who don't know about those options who need to be told. And it's not bad news, you guys. It's good news because a good king has made a way for them to be in that place forever. I'll talk about that in a second. So as we kind of close today and close out this whole series There are a few suggestions and encouragements I want to make for you. I know there's a lot of people in the room who are preparing to make resolutions. There are a lot of people who have resolved to never make another resolution because they never pan out for you. Whatever you're going to do, however, you're going to set about bettering yourself and bettering your life next year, here are some suggestions that I think the book of Isaiah, and particularly this picture of new creation, has for us. The first is to change your desires. What are you desiring? Are you wishing and hoping for the small thing, for the Amazon package thing, or even the thing that seems bigger, like retirement, like marriage? Or have you set your focus even farther than that? C.S. Lewis talks about how one time he was in his woodshed And he saw a beam of light shining in through the window. And he was looking at this beam of light and seeing how beautiful it was. You guys have seen beams of light like that before, right? Where it almost looks solid. It's one of the most beautiful things. And he's staring at it and thinking, wow, this is so beautiful. And it occurred to him, I could look at this beam and focus on its beauty. Or I could turn and look along the beam at the sun and see the source of all beauty and the thing by which I am able to see all beauty. Is your motivation, your desire, the thing that you put your hope in, the thing that fuels you and makes you get up every day, is it a small, shadow, material, temporary thing that will never actually satisfy you? Or can you put your motivation and your desire past that, look along the beam at the good promises that God has made to his people? Now, it's a story about two guys who are offered the same job. They have to spend eight hours a day in a small room counting paper clips. Eight hours a day, every day for a year. One of them is told, at the end of this year, if you do this, you will get $10,000. Most of us, there's some of us who would do that. Most of us would be like, I'm gonna find a different way to make $10,000 this year. This is mind-numbing, boring, my fingers hurt, it's killing me. But the other guy is told, if you do this, for 8 hours a day every day for a year at the end of the year you'll get 100 million dollars every one of us would like whistle on our way to work we find like dances for how to count paper clips with you would love that job the job's exactly the same one person has a different perspective about where everything is headed My point is not that there's this $100 million reward for you in heaven. That's not my point. My point is one of those two guys has a completely different perspective about the trajectory of everything. And he is able to be stronger and more courageous and more steadfast in his work than the other guy is. And if we set our desires in the right place, it'll change our motivation. If you're a Christian, you have in the Bible this glimpse of what the future of everything looks like. And you can do these New Year's resolutions to get small, earthly, temporary rewards, or you can do the exact same thing with a motivation that points beyond yourself. You could say, hey, I want my family life to be better. I wanna improve my communication with my, my spouse and my kids. And you could do that so that there will be less arguing in the house, or you could do that to paint a picture to the world around you of the future reality that's coming where there is no fighting in families anymore, where there's no distress anymore, You do the same thing for a higher purpose. Your energy, your courage will be higher. If you want to be a better employee, do that. But don't do it so that you can get a raise. Do it so that everyone around you in your workplace gets a picture of a future reality where work is good and rewarding and enjoyable and not painful. These shifts in motivation give us courage beyond everybody around us. The ability to do these incredibly difficult things that God calls us to do in the New Testament. If you're focused on small temporary rewards, you'll never be able to do these things. But if your motivation, if your view is beyond that, then you will. Drew and the worship team, you guys can can come on up. The third thing here is gratitude. A lot of us are are used to working for reward, working to get something. The Christian motivation is never about reward because the reward comes from the work of Christ, not your work. And so everything we do needs to be fueled by and motivated by deep gratitude. Did you know that the only reason that you're not immediately going to be thrown out of that city is because Jesus, 2,000 years ago, put a cross on his back and willingly walked out of that city? Jesus puts the cross on his back and walks outside the city walls to the place where you and me should go. And he does that so that you can have a place secured for you in that city for all eternity. He does the work. And so everything we do this year should be fueled by gratitude for that incredible blessing and the rich mercies that are available in Jesus. So I want to invite you all to stand. We're going to sing one last song. And it's a, it's a, beautiful song to sing at the beginning of a new year that reminds us of the fact that every single bit of glory and honor and praise belongs to Jesus. And anything we do that's motivated by anything less than that will fade away, will be fleeting, will not matter in eternity. But the things that direct us to Jesus, the things that are motivated by his work and his goodness, those things last forever. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful that you sent your son. I'm so grateful for his obedience, his willingness to step outside the city to the place where I should be. And Lord, I believe that because of that, he has been given a name that is above every name and Lord, I choose to bow. I choose to kneel before that king because I know he is good and loves me, and has saved me. So Lord, I pray that as this year concludes and another year starts, that you would help us to fix our eyes on greater rewards, on desires that are beyond the small things of this world that can be so distracting, so that we can do the good things you've called us to do with energy and motivation, not looking at the beam, but looking along the beam towards the sun. Not focusing on the mud pies, but focusing on the holiday at sea. Lord, give us that motivation and may we glorify you in everything we do and be made more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.